Today on Maine Calling, the latest news from the State House and the month in review. Even though it was a quiet week for the legislature, the political news did not stop. Governor Mills signed a supplemental budget. A new referendum question, the right to repair, qualified for the November ballot. And some conservatives are criticizing Senator King for what is being dubbed Twittergate. I'm Jennifer Rooks. Today on Maine Calling, we will check in on those stories and more with our political pulse team of Steve Missler and Kevin Miller. Then we'll catch up with our panel of Maine newspaper editors to discuss other big headlines in February in Maine, from a proposed family leave law to a brand new license plate. Goodbye, chickadee. Hello, pine tree. Maine Calling is just ahead. Maine Calling on Demand is made possible by Maine Seacoast Mission, strengthening Maine's coastal and island communities through education, health, and support. Learn more at seacoastmission.org. I'm Jennifer Rooks, and this is Maine Calling. Today on the show, Maine's Maine Public's Political Pulse Team returns for our first segment to discuss news out of Augusta. Then we'll be joined by a panel of Maine news editors to discuss the month in review. First, let's welcome back to the show Steve Missler, Maine Public Radio's chief political correspondent, and Kevin Miller, Maine Public Radio's State House correspondent. Welcome back to both of you. Thanks for having us back. Yeah, thank you. Steve, on Tuesday, Governor Bill signed a $40 million supplemental budget. How is the supplemental budget different from the state budget she outlined in her speech? And where does that $40 million come from? So whenever you hear the words supplemental budget, it effectively means a change to the current budget. So the $40 million spending plan you're referring to, Jen, is effectively an adjustment to the current two-year spending plan that expires at the end of June. Um, and you asked where the money comes from. Most of that money is basically was from the state surplus, but um, there wasn't that much. That's why it was only $40 million that because the, uh, the heating relief checks and that the uh, emergency bill that passed like basically the beginning of January gobbled up the majority of the surplus, which is close to a half billion dollars. So the two-year budget the governor discussed in her address last week is her proposal for the next spending plan, and that is currently in the hands of the legislature, which can and probably will make some changes to it. All right. Well, this supplemental budget tackles two issues that are very much in the news right now, um, the nursing home staffing shortage, and also pay for those lawyers who defend people who cannot afford to pay for an attorney themselves. Kevin, how far will this money that's been allocated now go to solve these problems? Yeah, well, the Mills administration and the legislature, they did set aside this additional money. It's, it's actually state and federal money for nursing homes. And that's because, you know, these these facilities continue to struggle with the increased costs and the staffing shortages from the pandemic. You know, like a lot of hospitals, many of these facilities had to resort to staffing agencies and temporary workers, which cost a lot more. And a representative for the state's long-term care ombudsman told lawmakers that uh, six nursing homes around the state closed between 2021 and 2022, which that just puts an additional strain on an already overburdened system. 
the the money that they set aside is not going to solve all these problems. I think we actually heard on main calling earlier this week that hospitals are often still unable to discharge patients because they don't have anywhere to send them when they need rehabilitation or nursing care. So and this is a longstanding and, and long-term problem that the legislature is going to have to continue to to address. Uh, the other issue that you mentioned, the Maine's indigent legal defense system, uh, yeah, they received money to increase pretty significantly the reimbursement rate for private attorneys who who provide uh, defense to uh, people who can't afford their own attorney. Um, this is actually going to almost double it. It's going from about $80 an hour to $150 an hour. Up until a few months ago, Maine was the only state in the country that relied entirely on these private attorneys to defend to represent defendants. We now have a handful of of, of state employed public defenders. And Governor Mills has proposed uh, adding more, but this increase in the reimbursement rate up to $150 has already actually already uh, appeared to draw in additional attorneys willing to do that work. All right, then let's talk about the $450 heating relief checks that so many people are looking forward to receiving. Steve, how many people have actually received theirs? And if you haven't, what should you do? Yeah, so as of last week, Jen, uh, roughly 60% of the checks had been mailed by the state. That's according to the state finance office, which expects to make more progress on getting those out the door. <clears throat> um, and I suspect that they have. The governor has said that all of the checks should be in people's hands by the end of March. So it would appear that the state is on track to meet that target. We'll see. Uh, you asked what people should do if they haven't received their check. Well, they can do two things, really. They can continue to wait. But if they're curious about the status of their payment, the state has actually set up a website where they can check it. It's maine.gov slash governor slash mills slash energy relief. So you could check the status of the check there, of your check there. Um, and I would expect, you know, that we'll hear more as the state makes more progress in getting them out the door. We just happened to ask about it last week and the status report we received was 60% um, of the checks have been mailed. All right, Kevin, there's another potential referendum in the news, a right to repair. Those petition signatures were, um, uh, approved this week. Explain what this is right to repair and. And I'm wondering, why hasn't the legislature just passed this in the past? It doesn't seem like sort of the big social issue that so many referendum questions are. Yeah, no. So, so right to repair is it's a national movement that its supporters say really is needed to allow consumers to fix or to hire someone to fix all the things that we buy, whether that's a, a cell phone or a washing machine or, or a car. The, the right to repair question that is likely going to voters this fall here in Maine only deals with the automobiles in this case. And it says that a car manufacturer has to give all these independent car repair shops or, or car owners access to, to the really high-tech diagnostic systems and tools that, that are really needed to, to work on cars today. Uh, a lot of cars, they actually trend, you know, it used to be that you took it to a shop and they plugged it into the to the car and, and they'd get a, a download of what's going on, the diagnostic codes. Well, nowadays, a lot of these these uh, this information is actually transmitted wirelessly to car manufacturers and to dealers, and the independent repair shops say that they should have access to that information. That way, car owners can decide where they want to take their car to get it fixed. Um, so this is they say this is really about leveling the playing field. But on the other side, you know, of course, there's always another the other side. 
Uh, you have the car makers and the suppliers, and they say that really the independent shops already have access to these diagnostics and these tools. And instead, they say this is a, a money grab by the aftermarket parts manufacturers and the big retailers, you know, the big national auto parts stores that we see all over the place. And they say that basically they're trying to get access to car to car owners data for marketing and sales. So I think that's a part of a big part of the reason why we haven't seen this move forward in the legislature before. Um, it is contentious, and um, on the on the surface, it sounds like something that you know returning rights to consumers, but but the industries have, have fought against it. Uh, lastly, the legislature will have a chance to approve this uh, before it goes to the voters, but typically what they do is they send ballot initiatives right to voters. Like so many things, more complicated than it appears on the surface. Steve, Senator King is the target of criticism this week from the right. Tell us about the Twitter files. All right. So the Twitter files is a project of Twitter's new CEO, Elon Musk, who believes that the social media company uh, muzzled conservatives under its previous ownership regime. And to prove this point, he has handpicked journalists who share this view, including Matt Taibbi, a former darling of the left who is now championed by the far right. Last week, Taibbi released internal Twitter documents showing that King's 2018 campaign had provided a list of hundreds of what they described as suspicious social media accounts to Twitter's previous executives. That list includes bots, conspiracy theorists, troll accounts, and but it also included some accounts that supported his Republican candidate that his Republican challenger that year, State Senator Eric Brakey. Now, Brakey and Republicans are now saying that this is evidence that King effectively created an enemies list, which is why you'll hear a lot of references to Richard Nixon if you are following the story, uh, and also that he used his position as a U.S. senator to persuade Twitter to take down these accounts. We don't know if that actually happened, but even if it didn't, the attempt has provided the Republicans grist for their larger claim that Twitter had had it out for conservatives. Now, I should point out that there's been an other reporting, and not from Taibbi, suggesting that politicians in both parties have indeed lobbied Twitter to take down or at least review bot or troll accounts. And if that's accurate, then King, King's request uh, suggests that there's an emerging pattern of elected officials, including high-profile pro Republicans like the former president, lobbying social media companies to adjust content based on their interests. So that's sort of the the controversy in a nutshell. And a spokesman for King essentially has, a frame, has framed this list as another example of Taibbi pu publishing only documents that fit his and Musk's narrative. And they also claim that they've provided a list of far left accounts too, that they said was spreading misinformation. Uh, and Angus King has also said that that was the intent here was to police misinformation. We've asked for that second list. We haven't received it, but that's that's the uh, controversy in a nutshell right there. All right. Thank you for explaining that. Kevin Miller, Governor Mills announced that she has joined the Republican, excuse me, the Reproductive Freedom Alliance, a group of 19 Democratic governors. What do these governors think they can do together that they can't do individually? Yeah, there's definitely no Republicans involved here, at least not, not as of yet. Um, but it seems that basically this is their attempt to show a united front on protecting abortion. And it's in response to the very vocal and you know sometimes uh, very coordinated campaigns that we've seen by anti-abortion governors and legislators in, in some states. 
there's a lot of talk in states uh, where abortion remains legal and is less restricted, like here in Maine, that they need to do something to shore up the legal protections for doctors who perform abortions for women who come here from, from other states with more severe restrictions. That seems to be, <clears throat> excuse me, that seems to be um, one area of potential coordination. Uh, some abortion, abortion opponents uh, are focused on restricting the use of medication abortion, you know, which has become the most common form of abortion in many states. So the governors in this new reproductive rights coalition, they're talking about uh, you know, pledging to, to work together to fight that. And then there are concerns about um, access to contraception in some areas. So you know, most of the governors who joined this are from, from left-leaning states, but there are a few Democratic governors in there from states where Republicans actually control the legislature. Uh, I think uh, North Carolina and Wisconsin are two. So, you know, again, I think this is more of a chance for these 20 governors to kind of show a united front up against the, the very vocal um, things that we're seeing from Republican governors. Steve Maine's Wabanaki nations are trying a new tack in their effort to gain tribal sovereignty. <clears throat> Tell me about the upcoming State of the Tribes address. Yeah, so we learned this week, Jen, that the Wabanaki leaders will be given an opportunity to address a joint session of the legislature on March 16th. That will mark the first time in nearly 20 years that the tribes have given such an address to a joint convention of the legislature. But as you noted, Jen, this is one This one will come at a time when I think there's much greater awareness about the plight of the Wabanaki and more specifically how they're treated differently than the hundreds of other Native American tribes in the United States. We don't ex know exactly what they'll discuss, but I think it's probably safe to say that they'll address what they view as constraints on their economic self-determination as a way of appealing to lawmakers that changes are needed. Now, they've they've been doing that for the last few years, a really conservative, a concerted effort to do it the last few years. But I think this time they'll get a, a chance to talk to the entire legislature all at once. And House Speaker uh, Rachel Talbot Ross, who has been a close ally of the Wabanaki, had said recently that she wanted the tribes to give this address and it looks like they'll finally get their chance to do that. Kevin, what is the latest on Clinton Collimore, that state rep who was accused of forging signatures on clean election petitions? Yeah, we well, we just heard this morning, actually, that Mr. Collimore has submitted his letter of resignation to the House Speaker. Um, he had said that he was going to do that last week after he uh, pled not guilty in a West Cassett courtroom to those charges that he, he forged signatures uh, voters in order to qualify for about $14,000 in campaign, uh, public campaign financing. But the speaker's office hadn't received that resignation and, um, until yesterday, apparently. So that seat is officially vacant and there will now be a special election to fill it. You know, I think what's, what's interesting, uh, this is a fairly rural district in one of those areas along the coast that can be hard to predict. Uh, the last representative, um, there was an independent who was pretty progressive on many issues, um, such as criminal justice reform. Uh, but I wouldn't say the Waldoboro or Friendship areas are, are kind of liberal bastions like we see on other parts of the Midcoast. So Republicans are already uh, pledging to put up a really strong effort to recapture that seat. But in the end, it's not going to affect the balance of power because uh, Democrats have a, have a sizable majority in the House. And finally, Steve, I understand it has been a quiet week in the legislature because of school vacation week. What do you expect next week? 
Well, I would expect a lot more hearings on the bills that have been printed. And I think we're close to 900 drafted bills so far, Jen. That's out of more than 2,000 that uh, that have been put in for requests. Um, of course, public hearings on the governor's budget will continue as well. Lots of, But there's still lots of big issues still hanging fire that may not come up next week, but should in the months ahead, including abortion, paid family leave, and you name it. There's a lot of, that's usually the way it works in the legislature. The the, the big controversial or even contentious issues usually kind of, they hang out until the end and the legislature takes care of them before they uh, adjourn for the session or for the, yeah, for the session in, um, in June. And so I would expect a lot of that stuff we'll see then. But for now, that's the sort of churning of, of all the other uh, bills that, um, maybe don't don't get the same sort of level of attention, but are also very important. Well, thank you both. That was Steve Missler, Maine Public Radio's chief political and government correspondent, and Kevin Miller, Maine Public Radio's State House correspondent. And Kevin and Steve um, are off when we come back. Our panel of Maine newspaper editors to talk about the month in review. This is Maine Calling. Welcome back. This is Maine Calling. I'm Jennifer Rooks. Today on the program, the top news stories in Maine from the month of February. My guest today, Susan Young, editorial page editor for the Bangor Daily News. Ben Bragdon, editorial page editor with the Kennebec Journal and Morning Sentinel. And Siobhan Brett, opinion editor for the Portland Press Herald and Maine Sunday Telegram. Share your thoughts about the news of the month. Send an email, a brief email, please, to talk at mainepublic.org. You can comment on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or give us a call at 1-800-399-3566, 1-800-399-3566. Earlier in the program, um, Steve and Kevin were talking about the supplemental budget, but let's go back even further, Susan, to Governor Mill's State of the Budget Address earlier this month. What did we learn from that? Were there any surprises? There wasn't much new from her address since she had already unveiled her budget um, proposal weeks earlier. A couple of new things, speeding up the timetable for the state to go 100% renewable in terms of energy. Um, she set a goal um, early in her administration that that would happen by 2040 or 2050, I'm sorry, and she's moved that up to 2040. Um, I think currently about half of the state's renewables or energy comes from renew renewable sources. Um, she also included some more funding to address the opioid um, crisis, um, probably not enough. A new focus and plan for the embattled child welfare system, which um, continues to um, face a lot of challenges, some um, additional money for judges, talked earlier about, you know, the problems with indigent defense and backlog in the court system. Um, so those were some of the new things that she threw in at the end, but largely her budget continues funding priorities that lawmakers from both parties um, have said they support. All right, Siobhan. There um, was a mention of a housing first bill in the budget speech, which was, I think, very encouraging for housing advocates and those working to fight against chronic homelessness across the state of Maine. Housing first is a, a sort of a model uh, many listeners may or may not be, be familiar with, um, uh, whereby 
people are housed in supportive circumstances where there are on-site social workers and people to assist them. Um, there are no barriers to entry. And uh, I, people who I spoke with, I think were happy with the fact that Mills expressed her support for the bill. Uh, she, she said verbatim, send it to me. I'm ready, I'm ready to sign that bill. And I think with the um, with the standing ovation that I received on the on the floor, um, you know, both of which I think just express the urgency and the um, the kind of alignment uh, that's felt uh, in in terms of fighting back on this issue. Ben, uh, just to piggyback on what Susan said about the um, you know uh, speeding up the um, the pathway to 100% renewable electricity, I and mean, that's not the last that we've heard about clean energy this session for sure. Um, obviously this has been a huge priority of, of Governor Mills to, um, uh, to move in this direction, um, but it's, uh, you know, um, faced a lot of criticism from Republicans um, who are, you know, blaming this clean energy movement um, for the high bills that we're uh, experiencing right now. Um, uh, I don't think that's the, ma the major factor in those bills, but um, in that environment, some of those arguments might get some traction. Um, we're going to have a, a debate over uh, solar power in this session, probably over net metering, which is a, a complicated um, topic, but um, uh, and one that that tends to get kind of muddied by the um, by the political argument over clean energy. And so that's going to come up uh, this session is as well. And, you know, while I'd usually say that, you know, a, a democratically con controlled legislature um, with a democratic governor, um, all of whom have uh, been very supportive of clean energy would push a lot of this stuff right through um, this year in this environment with people spending so much on energy. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot of people listening to that argument that um, we have to pay more attention to price than we do to um you know, uh, the environment. Siobhan, um, supplemental benefits for SNAP recipients will end next Tuesday. How many people will be affected? How much will benefits go down? And what happens to these families? Yeah, Jennifer, I think last month, it's amazing, a month moves quickly and February moves particularly quickly because it's so short. We, we spoke about the end of um, eviction protections and other rental assistance that was associated with the pandemic. And this is in the exact same category, a, a group of, uh, or a, a style of support that was extended on a temporary basis, but that really, really, really changed things for people. Um, one in, uh, is it is it one in eight Americans uh, receives SNAP or food stamps? Um, and the, the amount of money that's about to be deducted from the average in Maine now is about $190 per month, which for recipients is, you know, it's just really hard to describe how that changes the, the shape of your household budget and affects what you can do for yourself and for your family. Um, we wrote a story about a woman living in Portland who whose budget is going to drop from north of 200 to I think $23. So the shift in, uh, there's there's a shift, you know, this need isn't going away and um, local food pantries and other organizations are going to have to step up, I think, in order to try to meet these needs. Um, there's 
in, in terms of how many people this will affect in Maine, I think about 100,000 low-income Maine families. Um, and that's, a, that's an enormous number. Uh, I, I think there's probably a role here, perhaps for some type of bridging or something to be done by the state to mitigate the, the darkness and the steepness of this drop. Um, but we haven't heard anything about that yet. Susan. And to put it another way, the average benefit will drop to, as my understanding, $6 a day per person. I mean, think about how much money you spend to feed yourself and your family. Um, a lot of people want to act like, you know, this is some overly generous benefit, but um, it's not a lot of money to feed a family. And as Siobhan mentioned, the um, eviction protection has ended. The Congress also did not renew an enhanced child tax credit. So that mean, that credit was, um, I don't want to say credited again, but that's the word that comes to mind, with raising, um, dropping the child poverty rate by half. And we've already seen child poverty creeping back up with the ending of that enhanced benefit. So it's just accumulation of cuts that um, are hitting people who are still struggling. Obviously, you know, the um, pandemic adjusted SNAP benefits were because of the pandemic. But as we know, food prices continue to be high. So the need has not gone away. So an issue that state lawmakers and federal lawmakers will continue to have to deal with. Ben. Um, I would just add, I mean, this is a hunger program, obviously, and, and the focus should be on getting people the food they need. But there are awful, um, there are an awful lot of stores around Maine that depend on SNAP funding that have, you know, 60% of their revenue come from SNAP because they're in a low income area, uh, rural area. And um, and if you take away SNAP, you take away the ability of people to to spend money in their community, um you know, those, those stores could be a trouble in trouble. And there's not a, uh, in those places, there's not a whole lot of other things, you know, to offer. So, um, you know, this, there's a, there's a business uh, impact to this, a community impact to this that goes beyond just the people who use food stamps. Ben, I'll stay with you. Speaking of pandemic benefits, it seems as though we're seeing a slew of cases in Maine in which someone is being charged or convicted for PPP fraud. Um, we're seeing these all over the state. What did these business owners allegedly do and how widespread is this fraud? Uh, seems fairly. Uh, it's a, um, we're still kind of getting to the bottom of that. So the PPP was the, um, the, uh, the program uh, put in place early in the pandemic. Uh, Senator Susan Collins was one of its chief authors. Um, and the idea was to get out uh, forgivable government loans um, to help businesses get through that period where everything was shutting down and we didn't know exactly what was going to happen and we didn't know who was going to get hurt and who wasn't. And we were just trying to keep people on the payroll, trying to keep businesses from from dropping employees, you know, all, all at once as as demand sunk when we couldn't go anywhere. And um so the priority was put on getting money out fast. You know, they couldn't wait around to to um, check everybody's applications. You had to get get it out first. So it was a, a very easy application process, and um, a lot of people apparently um, took advantage of that. So what you've seen um, from these fraud cases is people, you know, falsifying info, um, you know, uh, 
adding people to their payroll that don't exist. So they seem like they're a bigger company. They seem like they're going to lose more money. So they get bigger loans. Um, and then taking that money and spending it on things that weren't allowed. You know, you, you could only spend this money on certain things. And um, it, jet skis wasn't one of them. You know, for instance, you couldn't take the money and go buy a summer home with it. And that's what a lot of people did. And um, sometimes they just, uh, you know, added um, numbers to businesses that existed. Sometimes they just made up businesses. They're finding... Um, uh, the SBA, the Small Business so, uh, um, Administration, Administration. Um, yeah, <laughs> says, uh, you know, they think that at least 70,000 of these loans out of out of about 11 million were fraudulent. Um, 60, 70 billion dollars that went out. A lot of it went out to multiple addresses, the same address over and over again. Um, and so uh, uh, a lot of this money went out to people who... who didn't deserve it. Um, a lot of it ended up going out to companies that that did pretty well during the pandemic. So they never really needed um, what turned out to be free government money. Um, and they're still getting these loans uh, um, forgiven. So they don't have to pay them back even if they they didn't really need them. So between the fraud and the, the money spent on businesses that didn't really need it, um, uh, that's kind of the downside of the PPP program. And, and as we look at its effectiveness, you have to certainly say that that um, while a lot of the money went to people that really needed it and did a really good job in a tough situation, um, it was nowhere near perfect. Susan Young, a coalition of groups is pressing the legislature for a statewide family leave bill. But so far, we're not seeing very many details. Um, I'm wondering what those details might be. Do we have any clues? And also, since Maine has so many extremely small businesses, one or two people, those would likely be exempted. And then Maine also has some much larger companies, Maine Health, Bath Ironworks, that already have family leave benefits. How many workers would such a law really affect? Uh, that's really going to be probably a focus of the debate in um, Augusta, as you say, um, proposals. We've seen what exempt small businesses, and you know, there's a sentiment not to add additional burdens on small businesses, which often already have a hard time. But as you say, so many of Maine's jobs are in those small businesses, and so if they're exempted, then what good, frankly, does a paid leave plan do? Because those are the folks that are most often left out that don't have that benefit already. So I think that's going to be a real challenge to pass a law that um, is not overly burdensome, but actually addresses the need for those people that already currently don't have paid leave. Finally, the story of the month. Oh, Ben, did you want to weigh in on family leave? Well, I just I thought you know they this is um, something that's that's been a long time coming. It, it's it's kind of gained steam over the last couple of years um, among progressives, especially. And uh, you know, just before um, the state of the budget address, um, there was a huge rally in or a big rally in Augusta at the state house that brought together all these stakeholders and speakers. Um, to really push for for uh, for this bill, and um, you know, a couple of days later in the state of the budget, Janet Mills didn't even mention it, um, which is interesting. Uh, 
you know, she said in her campaign um, that she would not raise taxes. Uh, this includes a, a tax raise, a, a new tax. Um, so maybe there's some hesitancy there, but it'll be interesting to see um, what the governor supports and what she doesn't support uh, and how vocal she is about it as, as this goes forward. All right. Well, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we will talk about what many think is the news story of the month, which is whether Maine will get a new license plate. And we'll also hear from the editor of the Harpswell Anchor. We'd love to have you join the conversation. The phone number 1-800-399-3566. You can send a brief email to talk at mainepublic.org. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Jennifer Rooks. You're listening to Maine Calling. We are revisiting some of the top stories from around the state this month. My guests, three newspaper editors, Siobhan Brett with the Portland Press-Herald, Ben Bragdon with the Kennebec Journal, and Susan Young with the Bangor Daily News. You can join our conversation by calling 1-800-399-3566. If you're quick, you can send a brief email to talk at mainpublic.org, tweet at Maine Calling, or post to our Facebook page or to Instagram. We're joined now by J.W. Oliver, who is the editor of the Harpswell Anchor. J.W., thanks for calling in. And I understand the Harpswell Anchor is a different kind of newspaper. Tell me about it. Hey, Jennifer. Um, the Har- oh, my. Clearly a connection problem. Um, J.W., if you could... Um, Call back, and we'll try to go to you again. Uh, in the meantime, we'll go to AMK, who's calling from Scarborough. Hi, AMK. Go ahead. Thank you for taking my call. I wanted to um, speak about the um, monies that are being invested in um, shoring up our long-term care facilities. As a home-based caregiver to my 85-year-old mother, I have some very specific opinions about that. We are our own labor force, the home-based caregivers. And I'm trying to plead to the government to start redirecting the funds that they're sitting on and that they're directing towards long-term care and start supporting those of us who are taking care of loved ones at home. We are the labor force that will solve the long-term care problem. We don't need more beds in nursing facilities and long-term care. We need to support people who are staying at home, caring for our loved ones who can be cared for at home, and we need the support. So instead of directing $10,000 a month, to a nursing home to take care of my mother that would be staffed by dozens of people around the clock doing all the things that I am doing, they can redirect that $10,000 a month, <clears throat> excuse me, to the long-term care, to our home-based caregivers who are doing that work in order to keep our loved ones out of long-term care. AMK, Not thank you for calling and making that suggestion. Susan Young, is that part of any of the legislation you've seen or any of the discussion? But, but it's also been a frustration of mine that we talk a lot about um, prioritizing people aging at home, but then the resources aren't necessarily there to make that happen. Um, I know long-term um, caregivers, you know, uncompensated care is in the billions of dollars nationally. And it's a really good point to raise. It's a conversation we need to have. Nursing homes are appropriate for some people, but certainly not all um, folks in Maine as they age. So it's a really good point. Ben. Hey, yeah, I don't have much to add beyond Susan and uh, what Susan said, but we, we just do. We have a lot of people in the state that, that um, take care of a loved one. Um, 
the value to the state of that is is in you know millions and billions of dollars and we should try to uh uh, compensate them for some of this if if we want people to stay home, like Susan said. AMK, thanks for calling in. Uh, J.W. Oliver is back, editor of the Harpswell Anchor. J.W., um, tell us how your paper is different from others. Okay, well, I think we're going to give up on that. And maybe we can have him another month. Um, so let's talk about what might be the story of the month, which is Maine's proposed new license plate. Uh, Javon, I saw the picture in your paper. I confess, I kind of like it. Is this a done deal? Is this going to happen? My guess would be, yes, it is a done deal. Based on based on the letters and comments that my desk has been receiving, uh, it is looked on favorably. Of course, a couple of detractors, you know, a few chickadee holdouts. Uh, if I was pressed, I'd include myself in that number. I, I'm actually sort of partial to the to the whimsical drawing of the bird and that's what I have and I think I'll be able to keep it for 10 or 15 years more but um yeah people are really people have responded well to the very sort of clean lines um uh, the pine tree is, is popular uh and, but we've also received some impassioned criticisms of it um uh it's too clean you know it's it's too it's too anodyne this type of thing. i did so. notice there were lots and lots of comments on after the press herald article on this topic um this is something you know we've we've discussed issues on this hour that are, are really probably let's face it more important but this one seems to be the one people want to make comments about yeah yeah, I mean, don't forget, we went through this debate, was it two years ago, when there was the proposal to change the state flag from, you know, the very boring, um, what is it called, um, state seal on a bed sheet, as some people re <laughs> reference it, you know, our flag looks like a lot of other states. And, you know, there was a lot of um, support from the public about returning to the 1901 flag, as Siobhan said, very clean, nice lines, has a lot of fans, but it was rejected by the legislature. So um, not going to have it as the state flag, yeah, the only thing, years, um... but maybe the license plate. <laughs> ben. Oh, I think we lost Ben. But, you know, we 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 ought to remember that, um, for one, the chickadee wasn't there forever. It used to be the lobster that many people had a love-hate relationship with. And I learned uh, from one of your papers that most states change their license plate pretty often, that Maine <laughs> having the chickadee for so long is is really unusual. Ben, um, I saw uh, an earbud fall out of your ear. <laughs> Are you back? Yeah, I'm back. Uh... Yeah, um, uh, you know, every time we open up one of these things, it seems like uh, it kind of gets out of control. We had the the state snack or treat or something a few years ago, and when they were they're trying to make the um, the flag for the 200th anniversary, there was you know they're trying to change the the regular state flag, um, the state bird. Um, the problem is, is that, you know, you can't get a majority on any of these and everyone just goes off and, you know, oh, if we're considering a new plate, what about this? So maybe there'll be some sort of grand deal uh, in the legislature where the chickadee plate will stay on as a as a um, extra plate or or something like that. Or the, the, the flag one will become an extra plate. Um, I think we'll probably the only sure thing is that we'll spend way too much time on it, I'm sure. Susan. We should also um, go out on a limb here. 
get rid of vacation land. Uh, I, I think there's growing momentum that um, that's not the right sentiment. I think it's a 86 year old phrase from a marketing campaign during the depression. So maybe we can all agree on let's ditch vacation land. Maybe it's deer ago. I don't know what should replace it, but um, at least perhaps we can agree on that. I see the other two nodding on this. Okay, so we have just a few minutes left. What have we not discussed? What's important in the news this month? Susan, um, state Republicans um, suggesting a spending cap. Tell us about that. Um, yeah, so this is kind of in the weeds um, that I admit I didn't even know about, but there's actually a spending cap on the state budget, and I believe the governor's plan for this year would actually um, exceed that. It comes from LD1 back in the day when um, voters said they wanted 55% school funding. Obviously, we didn't reach that until last year. So the governor has proposed to update the spending, um, the baseline of the spending cap to include a lot of new spending that the state has um, enacted since 2005. That includes 55% school funding, um, municipal revenue sharing, we've had Medicaid expansion. So basically it would be to recalculate the baseline of the spending cap to make it more realistic. And then this budget would not exceed the cap. Uh, the legislature could also by majority just vote to um, go beyond the spending cap, which communities and school districts have been doing for years. So on one level, it's meaningless, but it's gonna get some attention in this legislative session. All right. And Siobhan, we talked about with Steve and Kevin a little bit that Governor Mills has joined uh, 19 other Democratic governors um, for, I can't remember the name of it, but basically um, a coalition to support abortion rights. Um, do you think that this is going to make any kind of difference? Do you think we're going to see, for example, legislation that's introduced in every each of these 20 state houses? Mm. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I could go that far with it. Um, they're calling it the Reproductive Freedom Alliance, which is a big name. Um, our editorial board was encouraged, I think. You know, this is a very atomized time. Uh, a group like this is kind of a symptom, I would say, of the post-Row world. Um, and to see a little bit of co collaboration and cooperation on a state-by-state -state basis is certainly, I think, a good thing. Um, and I'm glad that Governor Mills is is part of it. It kind of originated on the West Coast. Uh, two or three states, including California, got to go, got together over there, and gradually, I guess, they decided to try to organize it with a little bit of a more national um, flavor. And you know, as we wrote earlier this week, the nature of some of the challenges to abortion access right now are happening um, in ways that may seem small, like. Um, in the case of an outcome of a Texas court case to do with uh, medication abortion, but will have very, very far-reaching effects and sort of um, practical effects just in terms of driving individuals across state borders and uh, shifting responsibility onto bodies that uh, may or may not be prepared for it. And so I think the conversations that the governors who've decided to get together will have hopefully can inform better decision-making and policy-making on that front. Yeah, and I saw on the PBS NewsHour that that Texas decision could come as early as today. So this this is not something that might, you know, these these issues we will not be facing in the 
near in the far term future, but rather the near term future. Uh, another issue we haven't touched on yet, and Susan, I'll turn to you um, about this. The governor has just proposed um, a, a long and detailed plan for offshore wind development in Maine. I've been a reporter in Maine for 29 years. I think for most of that time, I have covered the development of offshore wind, the potential development of offshore wind. How close are we? Where are we? I'm ashamed for now to say I don't know the details of the plan, but clearly we really need a plan and a pathway forward. Um, as we talked about earlier, the governor wants to speed up Maine's um, renewable energy targets. We know we need cleaner energy. We need more locally or domestically produced electricity to hopefully um, ameliorate price increases and also keep that revenue lo more locally. But also there's a lot of concerns about offshore wind from um, fishermen, lobstermen, and environmental groups. And um, I think, unfortunately, there's been a lot of talking past each other. So it will just be helpful um, to have a place where the goals can be um, articulated while also addressing um, valid concerns about um, how offshore energy affects fishing, shipping, and other uses of the ocean. We have a few minutes left, so I'm going to ask each of you, Ben, what, do you, what are you looking um, at covering in March? What do you expect to be uh, the biggest issues in Maine? Well, I mean, there'll probably be something come up that we just never see coming and we end up talking about in four weeks. Um, but I mean, I have my eye on the legislature and see where that's going to go. I think, um, you know, a lot of intention, a lot of attention goes towards the individual bills uh, that are coming up and, and that's good. But like the formation of the budget is just such an important thing and it's such a long term thing. and It's really hard thing to get to get to. And um, I think, uh, you know, when they, everybody in the main media hopes that they can cover the, the state budget better than they do in the past, um, just because it, it's, it's a very hard thing to wrap your arms around, but it is the, the single most important thing that, that state politicians do. And um, it's gonna be really interesting to see how it comes together with all the various uh, um, uh, points of view in Augusta right now. Siobhan. Yeah, I I was struck watching the address, the, the state budget address. Um, it's not often that a governor is in such good spirits. Uh, you know, Maine has money to spend, and Governor Mills did a nice job of setting out uh, the different ways in which, and I guess giving some some detail and some color uh, as to as to how she would spend them. It was quite an upbeat presentation and um, and a good one, but. There are a lot of really, you know, baked into that are a lot of really, really serious uses uh, and needs. And, um, you know, as we push into March, April, May, uh, and coming to the end of the summer, when, uh, you know, th throughout those months, I think we're going to see drop off of further sort of quote unquote pandemic era supports for people driving vulnerable households and, and individuals closer to the poverty line in some cases, um, putting them at risk. Uh, you know, I don't need to tell anybody that we'll we'll stay on housing um, and the homelessness crisis as a as a top priority. Um, and I think, yeah, to Ben's point, you know, it's uh, the budget's vital and it's 
by by my by my assessment in uh you know pretty good in, in pretty good shape and and does a lot and promises a lot with a little bit of creative thinking in the mix so uh yeah it'll just be it'll be heartening hopefully to see that moved through uh, as, as efficiently as expeditiously as possible and susan what are you looking to in march um, as Benza and Siobhan echoed, definitely the budget, you know, is there hope for a bipartisan budget as the governor has said she wanted? Obviously, um, Republicans have a lot of concern and are far from being on board. So as we get closer to April, that will be key. Um, housing um, continue to be a huge issue. Um, Bangor's moving forward with some um, innovative projects, a tiny home neighborhood, which looks pretty interesting. Um, also, there's always the weather, you know, we all know better, but we got lulled into thinking that spring was coming soon. And, you know, here we are back to winter. So, you know, March can be a pretty cruel month with swings. We're going to have nice days. I'm sure we'll get more snow and frigid weather. So we know we're all going to be talking about um, the weather, mud season, potholes, and all the fun things that come with spring, which will eventually arrive in Maine. You promise. <laughs> you predict. <laughs> um, we'll leave with this one email that just came in from Mike Connolly. He says, the U.S. is the only nation among those developed West that has no maternity or family leave policy that uh, not only should this be the law in Maine, there should be no exemption for small businesses. So Mike, thanks for taking part in Maine calling today. And thank you to all of you, as always, for being part of this panel and filling us in on everything going on in Maine. Siobhan Brett is the opinion editor for the Portland Press Herald and Maine Sunday Telegram. Susan Young, the editorial page editor with the Bangor Daily News and Ben Bragdon, editorial page editor for the Kennebec Journal and Morning Sentinel. Today's sound engineer, KG Akimaladun. Our theme music was composed by Mike Jandro. Every Friday, the Maine Calling newsletter goes out. In that newsletter, we tell you what's coming up in the week ahead. We also provide any links that may have been mentioned in previous week's show. So you can subscribe to that by going to maincalling.org. Also at maincalling.org, the archive of our past shows. You can listen to literally hundreds of Maine Calling programs there, maincalling.org. I'm Jennifer Rooks, and you have been listening to Maine Calling on Maine Public Radio.